most of the people I hire, I say to them, look, I don't hire assistant coaches. I hire future head coaches, and I expect you to act like a head coach. And what do I mean by that? I mean that you must have the same pressure that a head coach has, that winning and losing is so significant, you're going to do everything to try and win that basketball game the same way as if you were head coach with your job on the line. It's so important that you turn over every stone to find a way to win. Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney. And welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome Hall of Fame head coach of the Iona Gales, Rick Pitino. Coach Pitino is here today to discuss the evolution of the pick and roll since the 1980s, his eight segments of practice, learning from Europe, and we talk the benefits of pressure defense and mentoring assistant coaches during the always fun start, sub, or sit. This month, we're excited to be celebrating the one-year anniversary of our coaching and learning platform, SG+, a resource current members from all levels are calling, quote, essential and the best resource for high-level coaching anywhere. For a limited time, you can get 20% off a full-year membership to SG+. Visit slappingglass.com now for more information today. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Rick Pitino. Coach, welcome to the show. We're really excited to have you. A lot of interesting things to get to today, but we want to dive in with your thoughts on the pick and roll game today. You are someone that is credited with being one of, if not the first coach to introduce the pick and roll to the college game back in the 1980s with Billy Donovan at Providence. And when you think about the pick and roll now on either side of the ball, what are some of the first things that you think about? When you think about the pick and roll game more than anything else, what comes up the most is how to defend it. And there's the big problem with five men. Like we just recruited a seven foot, 285 pound center who's very talented and he has great hands. He's a terrific passer, terrific high post passer as well as low post, has a very good touch. But the knock on him is how does he defend a pick and roll? No different than a Shaquille O'Neal. So the only way for a big man to defend a pick and roll is obviously what we call a string. He plays off the man's screening about six, seven feet and tries to play two people as they come downhill on him. So it's the knock on big men if they can't defend a pick and roll. The converse to that is if you get a big man that can get out there and show and switch and move your feet. I had a young man, Yogos Papayanis, who I just recommended to the New York Knicks, and they're interested in him because he's seven foot. He could switch the pick and roll and hold the point guard in check, which is very, very difficult. So I recommended him just specifically for that reason because the pick and roll is run so much at the professional level because obviously the 20 point second clock. Coach, going back to the earlier days of the pick and roll, obviously the pick and roll now has progressed with different screen angles and all sorts of actions around it. But what was it like teaching it earlier on when it was, you could say a touch simpler as far as just two guys in the pick and roll and teaching the guard to be aggressive and the guard to want to attack out of it? Well, what we did a lot of back in 87, which was the inception of the three point shot, was we would come down on the break and we would send out five men on a back screen right in the middle of the lane. And we'd let Billy Donovan go right at that screener. And if they tried to hedge, he would take it on, get fouled. I'll never forget this as long as I live because of a major upset playing Georgetown, where I got in almost a fight at half court with John Thompson. And there I stood <laughs> at his navel ready to do that. <laughs> uh, he was going downhill. We milked the clock. There were 21 seconds to go. We were down one. They make two free throws. We came down the lane, ran the high pick and roll, and Billy didn't use it. He faked it, went the other way, went down the lane and hit Pop Lewis in the corner for a three-point shot and won the game. And from that point on, that was a staple for us to use the downhill pick and roll on the break. And as you just alluded to earlier, the different angles, what I learned from the EuroLeague is we have multiple angles. And the third or the second angle, depending on the play, 
we would ghost that screen. We would set it, he'd come off, we'd set it again, and the second time we made ghost. What I mean by ghost is we fake the screen and roll to the basket. We do it, the God will know we're ghosting it when the screener is running at him. If he's not running at him, we know he's going to set it. So it's not only the different angles now, it's different ways to ghost it as well. I focus in more on the defensive end of how to guard these things. We say on defense, as soon as you see the feet stop moving, that's when you know how to defend it. When you see the feet moving, you know the ghost is coming. Right. Coach, if I could just follow up on that real fast, quick tangent, because the ghost screen has been more prevalent, especially the college game all around where they're not setting it and running it through. You know, one of the harder things is for the guy guarding the ball to know when it's coming, should I switch, not switch, get over? How do you try to solve that a little bit? You just mentioned it, but how do you solve a ghost screen defending it? Primarily, you're going to just play it to his weak hand at all times. If he does beat you, it's going to be to his weak hand. And then the guy guarding the ghost knows it's coming weak as well. But what we try to do is just focus in on not the screen. We focus in on getting over and playing it to the weekend and understanding that the screen does occur. We're still going to get over that. Now, because I have prior to recruiting the seven foot, 285 pounder, <laughs> we would switch a lot. We have uh, Nellie Joseph Jr., who's more than capable of switching and guarding it. You know, there's a lot of teams that switch. The one thing you'll notice is they play really good defense and get the offensive team to shoot a low percentage. The flip side is you see so many offensive rebounds given up because of the switching. When I took over at Panathinaikos, I found it kind of curious that they were on the top of one, two, or three on field goal defense, but they were in last place in giving up the second shot because they switched on everything. Coach, philosophically, if you do have that big man that can switch, what are the pros and cons of switching? And like you said, what do you have to be mindful of? We're trying to get him to take a mid-range jump shot. And there are very few Kevin Durant's around that are going to make a high percentage of that. Right. So we're trying to get him to do that. We're going to front the low post on the switch and give weak side help. Mm -hmm. But we're going to what we call a car crash. When that shot goes up, we expect that God to crash that big. And we expect the weak side to come and give him backside help on a rebound. We're more concerned not with the mid-range jump shot, but we're concerned with the offensive rebound. We're going to do everything possible to make sure that doesn't happen on that switch. And looking at the big, so if he's kind of tasked, if you're telling him we'll live with the mid-range, I think it's easier said than done. How are you working with your big to not get blown by or you know maybe protect the three-point line? Once he breaks the three-point line, we're working on moving up beat, hands ready to challenge the mid-range jump shot. And then obviously when he goes to the rim, we're going to block it late. Now we have good shot blocking. We led the league in shot blocking, but we're unusually big. We're seven feet, seven feet, six, nine for a mid-major program. We're unusually tall and we have a good shot blocking team. And with that big on the perimeter, are you stressing footwork? Are you stressing a stance? Are you stressing more using your length? You know, what are kind of the cues, the tips, the tricks you're telling with him? We're always telling our bigs, our hands are active, our hands are ready. We always have what we call, we're bent at the wrist, our fingers to the sky. We're moving our hands, we're bent at the elbow and we're moving our feet. We're not extended like this because that slows you down. We're bent at the elbow, we're moving our feet and we're waiting for two hands on the ball, then react. We always watch for the two hands on the ball before we react. Until that point, we're moving our feet and sliding. Okay. Coach, going back to the offensive side of the pick and roll for a second, your progression over the years of the other three players outside of the two in the pick and roll, and whether it's spacing, whether it's cutting, whether it's screening, I mean, there's so much stuff that obviously can be done now. Just maybe for you, if there has been a progression of how you view how to use those three guys outside of the pick and roll. Well, let's take the Celtics shutting out the Nets. Two things, and I don't ever second-guess coaches because they know their talent better than I do. But watching it on TV, the Celtics, to have a great defensive team guarding a pick and roll, you have to play three versus two. You have to play four versus three. It can never be two versus two to be a, a good defensive team. It has to be three versus two, four versus three. Conversely, on offense, you've got to make sure that if I'm Kevin Durant, and I'm trying to post up at the elbow for an isolation one-on-one, the defense knows that he's isolating there and everybody choreographs their defense to stop him to play two versus one. So what you have to do more than anything else is two things. You have to get the ball to Kevin Durant, not in an isolation, but after movement. And the second thing you have to do to help side people. 
if I'm the offensive player and my man is helping on Durant, it's my job to go to the arc, to cut in the arc, or to cut in an area where I can get an easy shot if I'm a three-point shooter. Well, that broke down with the Nets. They allowed three guys to converge on Durant and stop them, as well as Kyrie Irving, because A, Durant wasn't moving. He was an isolated post-up person on the wing. And conversely, the man who was doubling, the offensive man never cut to the arc and never cut to an open area. So we work on offensive spacing at any time that if somebody is going to play three versus two or two versus one, we're going to space and cut to an area where we get open. And that's the downfall of a lot of offensive teams. Because right now, if you take, that's why you can't play a Steph Curry that way. Because he's always in movement. And conversely, the Warriors know how to cut. Because Draymond is such a great passer. You have spot-up shooters like Clay on the wings. So they're very difficult to play. With the Nets don't have that arsenal. They only have two great offensive players. Coach, with the cutting, I mean, we're always constantly talking with the coaches. Is it read-based or around the pick and roll? Are you designating cuts based on how you see them defending your pick and roll? 100%. You have to know whether they're downing the pick and roll on the side, whether they're weakening it, whether they're blitzing it like a University of Virginia. You have to know the third pass. You know if University of Virginia is going to blitz you, they're going to make the rotation. They're going to go after you hard on that second pass. It's the third pass in the cut that beats Virginia not the second. You have to know how they're going to make the rotation out of it. If they're downing it on the side, you have to know that you've got to take on the down. You have to realize that if you're going to create the switch, how they're going to rotate, where the next pass is going to occur. And those are the things you work on with your defense. Every drill I do in practice, we may be emphasizing defense and we may be the rotations out of a defensive pick and roll, but we are also conversely working on offense to teach them what to do when this happens. And I think the mistake a lot of coaches make is they're working on their full court press and they were so excited about the steal, the steal, the steal, the traps, but they don't teach the offense against that as well. They make that a separate thing. So we're always breaking down. We make the steal, great play, but look, let's look at the offense. How did that break down? How did that lead to the steal? And the same thing with the pick and roll situation. Coach, if we take whatever a drill you're doing, How then, as a staff, do you work through that? Are you doing big picture? Are you saying, I do defense, having an assistant do offense? You know, how are you then teaching that drill? I wear a microphone in practice now because I do something a little different than most coaches. I have four player development sessions every morning. I go from 8 to 8.45, 9 to 9.45, 10 to 10.45, 11 to 11.45, where I'm taking three and four players per session and just work on skill development. So at the end of the day, my throat is raw. So I wear a microphone in practice. When I stop practice and blow the whistle, my corrections are less than 10 seconds. Conditioning is such a big part of our system. I don't want to lecture. My lecturing is before practice by showing them video. But during practice, I don't want to stop it for long periods of time. I tell the assistants as well as myself, get in and get out quickly. Make your point, make your correction and get on. Coach, just since you brought it up, and I know it's something that you have been known for is the conditioning of your team. And you just touched on it for a second, but I wonder if we can go a little deeper on your thoughts on being a well-conditioned team, how you do it, what part of the season you're really focused on doing it. Well, the one thing I, various things I've learned what not to do as well as what to do, we do most of our conditioning now, although we work on our defensive slides, we work on things. We never go outside and run miles anymore. We never run hills. We never do military training like some coaches do just to build bonding. We do everything on the court in a drill situation because I used to be a runner before I hurt my knee. I always played up until age 58 and I would run for five, seven miles. And then I try to play a basketball one-on-one game and I was exhausted. (laughs) Nothing like playing the game aerobically and anaerobically in basketball. It, It takes a whole different way. So. I like to train on the basketball court with the drills that I do in terms of conditioning. In terms of building your team's condition, if we start from the preseason, are you increasing like we'll go two, three minute intervals and then increasing it? You know, how do you basically start with the conditioning and what kind of limits or time are you looking at to start with and then build up towards? So obviously one for injury prevention too. Let's take a couple of different areas. Let's take building the press. It's two man press. I'm on the ball guarding the guy taking it out, 
Then there's the guy denying the inbounds play. And what we tell him is we're trying to deny. We work on how to get open. Once he gets open, I, who was on the ball, now drop off. And we tell the guard, okay, put it on the floor and beat the man. It's my job to go trap. And we work on trapping. And we tell the guard, look, get trapped. And then hold the ball for three or four seconds. So we're working on splitting the trap. We're working on coming together and trapping the man. And then on the next pass, we play it live. And we go down. If it's a missed shot, we're racing down the court on an offensive fast break. And they can pass it on and lead break. They can run a pick and roll. If he scores, we're in the two-man press down the other end. And we're working on all the phases of the press, from trapping to back tipping on a two-on-two situation. We'll start out doing it up and down. Then we'll go up and down back again. And we'll do what we call twos. Then we'll work up to threes on a two-man. Same thing we do on a shell defense. When we start out, we go three-man. And we're working on, we have three offensive players, one at the top, two at the wing. And we have three guys on the baseline. The three guys on the baseline will pass it to each other. The third guy will pass it to a player. The player will pass it from the wing to the top to the other end. And we're working on a closeout. And now we start our defensive shell three on three. We don't fast break. We're just working on our defense. We're working on our offense as well. Then we go up and back without the press. Then we do twos. Then we do threes. So we build it up two men, three men, four men, five men. In all our drills, if we're teaching the fast break, we start out two on one, what we call triangle break. Man at the foul line, two guys at the blocks. We throw it to one, we go two man, then we go two on two, then we put two guys on the side out of bounds, then we put two guys on the baseline, and we build it up into five on five, where everybody has to talk who they're guarding, how they're playing, how they're switching. And it's all build up condition wise because we teach it first up and back, and twos, and then threes. And when you get to threes, it becomes very difficult because fatigue sets in. And what happens when fatigue sets in? Players don't talk. When they're fresh, they talk. I've got him. I've got him. As soon as fatigue comes in, and we know fatigue makes cowards of a lot of us, talking stops. And that's what we try to do. We blow the whistle. Hey, we're tired. We stop talking. That can't happen. And that's where slippage comes into play. Coach, being a well-conditioned team and some of the stuff like we're talking about, I know in preseason, I wouldn't say it's easier, but when you're really ramping up in preseason, how about things you've learned when you're, say, in middle of January, middle of conference play, and you still want your team to be well-conditioned, um, but you're also balancing you know, their health and playing games and all that? Well, when Jeff Van Gundy was my grad assistant back in 1987, and Billy Donovan was a player, we would practice in the mornings before breakfast for 45 minutes, dummy up all our plays. Then we would go individual instruction, play development for an hour. Then we would practice in the afternoon for three hours. And then I'd play two on two with Delray Brooks, Pop Lewis, Billy Donovan, myself at 10 o'clock at night. So that team made a run. And I think I'm responsible. That team at Providence College was responsible for the 20 hour rule coming into effect because they said <laughs> it was totally abusive what I was <laughs> doing from a basketball standpoint. So we enjoyed it so much. We loved it so much. We were all basketball junkies. But what I found out was, even though we went to a Final Four, was as years would go by, that that was over the top too much as the season went along now. So we do the same drills. We have eight segments of our practice, but our practice come February is about an hour and 40 minutes max. In the beginning, it may be 2.15, 2.20. And we never practice really more than 2.20 because we now have a 20-hour rule, and I'm going for 38 to 42 minutes of player development. So we got to really watch our time. The 20 hours is more than enough today from a standpoint of getting everything in. Can I just follow up on, you said your practice is broken into eight segments. What are those eight segments that you'll break your practice up into? Well, the first 15 minutes will be something we want to teach and we will break it up. We say, okay, God's on the other end. We are working on downing the pick and roll to the weekend. God's are getting over. We have a pad The God's are getting over the screen. The big men are working on stopping the ducking. So we have a period of 15 minutes that we work on a defensive aspect of the game. And we also work on the offensive part as well. So that's our breakdown for 15 minutes. The second 15 minutes will be our fast break segment. Three and four may be our pressing segments. 
two different presses. It may be the 221, it may be a white press, maybe a black press, but they're pressing segments as well as offensive pressing segments. The fifth will be our defensive segments. I will build up into our shell, our closeouts. The seventh will be our offensive half-court segments with our fast break. And the eighth segment is depending on what period. If you're in October, it's more special situations we're going to go, whether it's an underneath out of bounds play, somebody zoning it, what we do to that, fast break out of it, come back out of it, change it, a sideline out of bounds play. If it's January, February, maybe seven seconds on the clock coming out, what play we're going to run with, we're down two, what play we're down three, what we're going to run. We always fast break out of the play and we come back on a fast break out of the play. So we never just work on that one thing. It's always a transition defense into a transition offense. The eighth segment is always a game-like situation. If I could stay on the eight segments for a second. First, is that something that you developed over the years? Is it something you, you took from something else that you saw? Where did you develop that philosophy? I think it was more when I became the head coach of the Knicks. When I left Providence 87, I had the eight segments in at that point. And let's say you're getting close to the end of segment three and you want to go to segment four, but segment three is not going well. Do you just leave it as it is and move on to segment four or do you extend segment three a little longer? Or you know, is there any gray area there? We may extend it a minute or two and then cut the next segment a minute or two, but not much more than that. We'll get back to it. We'll show them the next day. We always have video every single day for eight to 10 minutes and we'll show them the mistakes we made in that area. And the one thing pro or college that's great about the video, the players hate being called out of that <laughs> video. They hate it. <laughs> we try to make it somewhat humorous, especially at the pro level, because they get embarrassed so easily. The college guys aren't as bad, but the pro guys, they don't want to be embarrassed at all. So we try to make it more a fun thing than anything else. Hey, coaches, we'd like to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Instat. They have been hands down the biggest resource we've used in generating our content. Their expansive database of over 30,000 players and 7,000 teams gives us the access we need to scout, notice trends, and learn from some of the best coaches in the game today. So join coaches of all levels who are using Instat to better prepare for their opponents, self-scout, and develop their players. By going to instatsport.com slash form and entering the promo code SGPOD, coaches can receive one free month of Instat Scout and 10% off their subscription. That's SGPOD at instatsport.com slash form. Thanks again to Instat for their support. And now back to our conversation. Coach, how do you evaluate a practice? When do you evaluate a practice? Is it right after? Do you need time to kind of walk away, step away from it? You know, what is kind of your routine then post-practice? It's interesting you say that because what we started last year is, actually I started my last two years at Louisville. We go through practice, we film every practice. And to be honest with you, I focus more on our next opponent than I do the practice. We have our ops guy, as well as our video guys that break down the practice. And we send all the stats from practice out with the exception. We don't put the total points. We put everything in columns, just like a stat sheet. The last thing we do when we put it up in practice, we put effort level. We take all the eight segments and then we combine it and we put the effort level. So segment one, you got a six, you got a seven. What is that based on? Well, we want our hand being active. We want you sprinting. We want you back tipping. And we want our players in eight, nine categories. In the beginning, it's always five, six, and sevens. We want to get it up to eight, nines consistently. Once in a while, you get tens. But every single day, we show the effort level. And I always tell the players, when you're in the game and you're a starter, or you're an active player, I don't sub you in and out. You sub yourself in and out by the activity that you have on the court. And you're going to know going into the next game that if you got fours and fives all the time in practice, you're probably not playing in that game. So you determine your playing time, not me. With statting the effort level, I think it's an awesome philosophy. You mentioned it, you know, the hands. So how are you evaluating them or assigning a point value to them? So, you know, it's not just completely subjective. I think you explain everything to them. And what I do is I take illustrations before we even start. I showed them this year a game. It was called The Miracle on Main Street. We were down 18 to Jimmy Butler and Crowder from Marquette. 
I was playing two walk-ons in the backcourt. Peyton Seaver and Russ Smith were very young. They were on the bench. I was playing a guard named Elijah Justice and another guard named Preston Knowles. And we were down 18, getting our asses kicked. I told them, okay, this game's over. You got Jimmy Butler, you got Crowder. No, it's not over. And I showed him the five minutes of being down 18 and how we came back and won it in regulation. And I showed them what we worked on. And I also pointed out why Marquette lost. Marquette stopped looking at the basket. They wanted time to run out. They wanted the clock to run out rather than beat us by 30. They were milking the clock and playing into our hands and allowed the comeback to happen. So we were always teaching them both ways. And I try to illustrate every single day, if it's being up in the game, how you've got to take the layup. Don't wait to get fouled. Take the layup. I don't believe in putting guys to the foul line in pressure situations. This year, we would have won 29, 30 games if we didn't miss free throws in crucial situations. And I like the layup before the free throw. That doesn't mean that we don't want to get fouled. We certainly do. We don't want to take a quick shot. But if I can get a layup or a dunk ahead of a free throw, I'm always going to take that. So we always show them the illustrations on video every single day. And with these young people today, because everything is electronic with them, electronic visualization is so important and so crucial for them to learn. Coach, I'd like to flip it to the beginning of practice and uh, less about the team and more about you personally. After all the stops you've been on, all the years you've coached, how do you personally prepare for a practice, whether it's physically, mentally, to get yourself into the mind space to conduct a great practice and have the energy you need? Well, remember going back to what I said earlier, I've already been through four player development sessions. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. And I try to make those sessions today, more so than years ago, more fun for the guys. And how do they have fun? The players want to keep score on everything and they want to compete on everything. Once you put competition in where they have to beat somebody else, like a shooting drill, we have a, what we call a Celtic 55 shot drill where you get 55 shots and you're trying to make it in the forties and they're competing against each other, your teammates down the other end. Anytime you put competition into any skill development, the energy and the intensity gets much higher. So we try to make it fun. We try to make it competitive. So I'm going into about an hour break after I go my four player developments from 12 to 1.30 is my exercise time. And then I go right into it. So my motor is running the entire day and I'm fired up for that video because video is the most important thing to start this practice off well. And we want to make sure that they understand what we're teaching that day by the video because it may be transition defense. It may be a matchup zone. It may be whatever we're teaching that day. That's going to be a big point of emphasis during that day. But once we go to practice and practice starts, we huddle for 10 seconds and we say the same thing every day. Let's make this the best practice of the week. And then we go right away with our warm up drill. We make everybody talk. We make sure everybody calls out the name to every pass. And we want that first five minutes before we go into our eight segments to be very lively. We actually play music as well. That's not Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Who's DJing, coach? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> coach, my last question on this topic is how you deal with a player who maybe has had a rough practice or a rough string of practices. And let's say we're going to the end of practice now. You've gone through it. And whether it's because they're not picking up something offensively or defensively, or whether it's their struggling playing time, or whether they're not putting the effort like we talked about, is there a conversation? Do you meet right then? Do you let some time pass? How do you maybe deal with someone that's struggling? When we're leaving practice, I'll grab them and say, it wasn't a good day for you, was it? And they'll say, no. I said, all right. I won't tell them then, but I'll shoot him a text the next day and say, hey, stop by the office five minutes before film. And I'll just talk to him. I'll say, let's analyze why you had a bad practice. What's bothering you effort-wise that you didn't produce? And generally, it's two different types of guys. One will give a bogus excuse. Then I'll say to them, listen, man, excuses are signs of weakness. Don't tell me it's a, an argument with your girlfriend or, or she broke off with you. I said, girlfriends are no excuse for basketball. Once you step over those lines, girls don't exist. Then they'll come the dog ate my homework excuse, uh, <laughs> and that's not going to cut it either. But then there's a legitimate thing. There's something bothering him. It's legitimate. And then we'll talk about that a little bit and say, look, more than anything else, there's a moment in your life that you get to escape all the bad things that are going on in your head and all the great things going over your head. And that's when you step between those lines. Between those four lines, you escape. Your problems are going to exist once you leave those lines again, 
and you'll have to deal with those problems. But between the lines, we got to focus in on the task at hand. And that's what we talk constantly about, that between the four lines, we don't think about anything except getting better as a basketball player and as a basketball team. They understand that and they get it. But the effort level is really important because, you know, guys, sometimes players don't realize that they're not giving effort. They think they're giving effort. Why? Because their preparation in life leading up to it, most of the high school guys have had their butts kissed so much that they stay out of foul trouble in the game so they don't play really hard defensively. They're part of the AAU circuit where they're getting so much love. They can't handle adversity. And I always tell my guys that adversity is very easy to handle if you're a competitor, but it's success. You know, we call it the sophomore jinx. You have a a very good freshman year and your sophomore year is very mediocre because you fell in love with yourself after that freshman year. And to avoid that sophomore jinx, you got to understand how to really get better and how not to fall in love with yourself. And it's difficult to teach. I had two players this year that fell into the sophomore jinx, my center, who still was a first-team all-league, but he didn't get significantly better. With guys like Donovan Mitchell, they don't fall in love with themselves at all. Their egos are set, and I call this good ego. We talk about, from a religious standpoint, some of my players think ego is edging God out from a spiritual standpoint, but from a basketball standpoint, I always call ego edging greatness out. As soon as you start thinking you've arrived, you're edging greatness out, you're going to get stale and you're not getting better. Play like Donovan Mitchell, his ego is such, I've got to get better because I'm only 6'1 and a half, 6'2. I've got size 17 shoe and I've got to perfect my moves and perfect my game. He was a very unique individual, highly intelligent, always working on his game, always working on the arc of his jump shot. But there are very few Donovan Mitchells out there. Absolutely. Coach, We've hit on it throughout most of our conversation, so I don't want you to repeat yourself, but what do you think it is that makes a great teacher? I think a great teacher can captivate his audience, and the audience obviously is your team and your players. If I'm motivational speaking to a company, it's capturing the audience, keeping the audience from looking at their phone, keeping the audience from getting distracted. So a great teacher in basketball is someone that can always keep their team focused on their task and what they're working on, making it fun making it intense, but captivating them so they're focusing in on it. Coach, it's been unbelievable so far. We want to shift now to a segment we play here with every guest on the show called Start, Sub, or Sit. So we'll give you three different basketball topics, ask you to start one, sub one, and sit one. And then we'll have a little discussion from there. So Coach, this first Start, Sub, or Sit question has to do with you have such an extensive coaching tree, people that have worked for you, that have gone on to become successful head coaches themselves. And so this first question has to do with the most important thing that assistant coaches need to understand to become successful head coaches. So start, sub, or sit, understanding strategy, X's and O's, all that goes into the game. Second is understanding people, understanding groups, dynamics, how people work, how they're motivated. And the third is understanding themselves, who they are, what they are as a person, all those kinds of things. So start, sub, or sit, start being the most important in your eyes to become a great head coach after an assistant. Hmm. I like that. I would probably say the last one that you said about understanding themselves, I'd probably put that third because it's amazing how many assistant coaches overrate their abilities. Uh, (laughs) It's just amazing. blows you away at the beginning. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about is they think that they can be head coaches. And then once they become head coaches, they immediately call me and say, hey, this shit is a lot tougher than I ever imagined, coach. I didn't know it was going to be this way. I get that phone call all the time. So I think that I didn't get a dose of humility until I failed. I thought failure was impossible for me as a basketball coach because I worked too hard. Well, that's not the way it works. Once you start coaching a mediocre basketball players, you're going to fail. And you realize your destiny is in the hands of people you recruit or the people you draft and so on. When you get a dose of humility, it's generally from failure. And failure is what I always said, fertilize it to help things grow in your life. Failure is the most wonderful thing in the world for a basketball coach. It keeps them grounded. It keeps them learning. That's why I went to Greece to learn more basketball at age 65. So to answer your question, I think the most important thing is to start with it, is to get out there and learn. So coach, in our, so we have the understanding the X's and O's and the strategy and understanding people. So in sense, those would be- That would be second. Perfect. Coach, love the answer. I'd love to jump in real fast with the failure. 
I'm wondering about as a younger coach and then as someone more seasoned, and if you look at failure differently now than you did when you were, say, just starting out and you didn't have the cachet and the reputation you do now as you did as an earlier coach. Why is failure good? Failure is good when you can own up to and not make excuses to why you failed. For instance, I failed with the Boston Celtics. Okay, so I lost out on Tim Duncan in the draft, and I played with Andrew DeClerc and Travis Knight at center and instead of Tim Duncan. So we went from 14, we improved, but you realize now when I look back on it, why did I fail? I failed because not because I was doing incorrect things as a basketball coach, because I was doing incorrect things as a president of a team. I should have never, ever taken president of Boston Celtics. It wasn't my niche. It wasn't my forte. I wasn't ready for that, even though I was advised to be that by people I respect. I shouldn't have taken that. So I looked at the Celtic failure as a way to grow as a basketball coach. And I understood who I am, what I am, what I can excel at. So failure is only good when you understand why you failed and you don't point fingers. So I don't point fingers and say, oh, because I had this guy at center. I had Andrew DeClerc at center instead of Duncan. No, that's not the case. If I failed because of these reasons. And once you can look yourself in the mirror and understand that, here's the reason you fail, then you don't point fingers at other people, then failure is a great thing. Then you can improve as a basketball coach and make yourself better. So many times coaches just make excuses. And I've always said this, and I really believe it, that excuses really are a sign of weakness. When you start making excuses all the time, it's the weakness of your abilities. And I don't like that when people make excuses. So I'm getting ready to hire an assistant coach. And I notice on his resume, this was fascinating, that he had about eight years of all these great things. And then the one line where he spent two or three years or four years at this university, and he just had one line, head coach of so-and-so university, no record, nothing, no accomplishments. But then I looked at his, I Googled it and said, oh my God, it was like 12 and 58 at that place. And he just said the one line, head coach of so-and-so from these years, like he was hiding his failures. And to me, That's what I was looking for. I was looking for somebody who failed because I know humility came into his life. And once you can get a humble coach, you get a hungry coach. So, and he's trying to avoid that where I think that's a great thing. I love that. Coach, what is the role responsibility you take in developing your assistants and preparing them for their opportunity as a head coach? Well, when I interview them, I I tell them this. I have an assistant coach named Tom Batamarco who's 72 years of age, and he's a recruiting guy. He loves recruiting. He's one of the few people in the game that love recruiting. (laughs) When I hired him, I didn't say this to him, but most of the people I hire, I say to them, look, I don't hire assistant coaches. I hire future head coaches, and I expect you to act like a head coach. And what do I mean by that? I mean that you must have the same pressure that a head coach has, that winning and losing is so significant. You're going to do everything. You're going to turn over every stone to try and win that basketball game the same way as if you were head coach with your job on the line. I want them to feel that their job is on the line. Not that they're going to get fired if we lose. It's so important that you turn over every stone to find a way to win from an underneath out of bounds play to a special situation at the end, stopping it. And all my assistant coaches have gone through that. And I've had 31 assistant coaches move on to be head coaches. And one has been more brilliant than the other. Somebody asked me the other day, who is your best assistant? I said, well, I can answer who my best assistant was, give you two people you know. If back then, when Jeff Van Gundy walked into my office, you said to me as the JV coach of McQuaid Jesuit, that he was going to be the head coach of the Knicks or the Rockets, I would say, I don't think that's going to happen. And if you said to me that Billy Donovan, a meek, shy individual who very rarely would even speak up, is going to be the head coach of the Chicago Bulls or the Thunder, I would say probably not. But then when I watch them work as assistant coaches, after I would say, yes, greatness lies ahead for those guys. So you never know what you're going to get when you recruit a basketball player. I, I never knew that when Donovan Mitchell ranked 68th in high school, it was going to turn out like that. Or Terry Rogier, who was ranked 78th, or Montrez Harrell, who was ranked 92. You never know what you're going to get. Same thing as an assistant coach. There are some assistant coaches, I've said, he's not going to make it real big in this game. And now he's coaching one of the top programs in the nation. 
<laughs> because you can't judge a book by its cover, by their stature, or by the way they come in a little meek and a little mild, because you never know what you're going to get. And I have had so many guys, Mick Cronin, who's you know small in stature, he's the head coach of UCLA. You, you never know. You can't judge a book by its cover. He was a dynamite teacher. Van Gundy's a dynamite teacher. Billy Donovan, a dynamite teacher. Tubby Smith was a dynamite teacher. Ralph Willard was brilliant right away, you know, and, and you knew it. So, so many of these guys, when they first came in, you don't know what you're going to get. But what makes a great assistant coach, I think, is somebody who's just trying to learn and trying to uncover everything. The person that taught me all of this was UB Brown. UB Brown, every single day, would say, bring me something different to practice. He put so much pressure on me every single day to be the best I could possibly be, that taught me. So my two years with UB Brown were the greatest two years of my coaching life because he challenged me every single day to rise to a new level as an assistant coach. Hey coaches, this segment of Start, Sub, or Sit is brought to you by our friends at Practice Planner Live. Practice Planner Live has combined all the components of effective, efficient, and time-saving practice planning into one easy-to-use platform saving your most valuable resource as a coach, time. Ditch the Word docs and the scribbled legal pads for a simple point-and-click experience to build your drill directory, collaborate with your staff, and create clean, customized, and shareable practice plans in minutes. With over 75,000 practice plans created at the professional, collegiate, high school, AAU, and youth levels, Practice Planner Live is proven to raise the level of organization and effectiveness of any program. Listeners of the podcast can visit practiceplannerlive.com and register for a free 21-day trial and enter the promo code SGPOD to get 10% off your subscription. Thanks for listening. And now back to our conversation. Coach, our next start subset. So we've been dancing around it, but it has to do with the benefits of full court pressure. And we'll remove, obviously, a steal. But these three things that you can get out of full court pressure. So limiting your opponent's half court offense, forcing them into quick shots or decreasing their ability to generate good shots, or just the mental fatigue it could place on your opponent. Mental and physical fatigue takes place in the last six, seven minutes of the game when you go against a pressing team. Today, people don't pass the ball well when they are fatigued mentally and physically. They don't shoot the ball well when they're mentally and physically fatigued. So I think that's what the press does more than anything else. It gets you to make quick decisions. Like So when I'm teaching the press, it's amazing to me how many times my good basketball players, when I say good, talented basketball players, will throw the ball away when they get tired. And that's what the press does to you. In the beginning, they handle it. They split the trap. They make the good play. They run the ball into their hands. But when fatigue, mentally and physical, comes into play, they start throwing the ball away. They don't run the ball into their hands. They start jacking up shots that shouldn't be there. They don't wait for the extra pass. They take the first shot. And that's when the press has its, that's when you see the press come to full fruition. My follow-up has to do with shot selection and how the prevalence of the three-point line and teams willing to take transition threes, or maybe if they can generate a first open look off that press, has it changed how you view the press and when you want to press? Well, it's not so much the press as much as about the three-point shot is, you know, when you're coming on a fast break and you're shooting the three, you better be Steph Curry, or you better be a guy that really is going to shoot a wide open three, 60, 65%. If not, I'm a big believer in you've got to get the layup on the fast break. You've got to get the layup. Now, if you don't, if you're on a fast break and you don't have the layup and you reverse the ball to the other side and now your rebounders come into play, I want you taking that three on ball reversal where your rebounders come into play. So it's all based on analytics and percentages of who's taking the three and the other situations. With the press, more than anything else, we've got to change ends quickly and we've got to go. If our press gets beat and we give up a layup, we want to inbound that ball cross half court in three or four seconds. And we want to beat that team down to erase that basket. We want to get an easy bucket. We are gone after somebody beats our press. Conversely, if we get the steal and the turnover, we want to make sure that we're getting a high percentage shot off of that. We want a post play. If we make a steal on the break and we don't have a layup, 
when we get reversal, we want to go inside right away. And we know that, that we're looking right what we call the arc. We're going right inside the arc. So sometimes, you know, if you're pressing and you jack up a bad shot, what I tell them, you mean we used all that energy up for that shot? We're running to back tip. We're denying. We're trapping for that shot. That's when we're really at a teaching moment. I said, we can't use all that energy to get that shot. That's just a misuse of all our energy. You just said something interesting with the back tip and, you know, that back pressure on a press, but also want to ask about transitioning from being a full court pressure team and then getting set in the half court defensively and getting organized and working on that and becoming good at that as a defensive team. Because you're going to have a lot of mismatches. That's where you're going to have to switch a lot. And I've pressed every which way possible. I have been what's a white press, which is a one, two, one, one press. When we won the championship in 2013, we were a 2-2-1 into a matchup zone, which became a man-to-man. So I pressed so many different ways, and it's all based for me on personnel. I had two lightning quick guards in Russ Smith and Peyton Siever, two undersized guards, six foot and six foot, where this year I was six three and six four. So we press according to our personnel. Believe it or not, in 1989, we averaged 116.8 points per game with the New York Knicks. And we pressed about 50% of the game because of the 24 second clock. We used the clock as our ally. So we pressed for different reasons. It's based on the clock. It's based on fatigue. It's based on our opponent. It's based on the fact that, and this is interesting, guys. Who is the worst against our press with the Knicks? Magic Johnson, Isaiah Thomas. Because they thought they could take the press on by themselves. Yeah. Who was best at it? The teams that were going to make three or four passes and utilize each other to break up pressure. But the guys that thought they could do it by themselves, Isaiah may beat it the first time down by taking on the guys, but the second and third time when fatigue sets in, they were going to turn the ball over. So it was interesting to see the false bravado of taking on that <laughs> press by themselves. <laughs> Coach, if I can just follow up, because I think you know what you mentioned, you've done a lot of different presses, and I know you know, me and Dan have thought about all sorts of alignments, what alignment with what team. And just to hone in on the example you gave when you had Peyton Siva and were a little undersized, but quick compared to when you were bigger and longer. We pressed a lot with that basketball team. And why? Was it because of the quickness of the Russ Smith or the Peyton Siva? No, it was because the first part of the basketball court in the backcourt, Russ Smith and Peyton Siva were lethal because of their speed, quickness, laterally. So I didn't want them coming down the court, playing top of the key to the backboard because of their lack of size. So I wanted to use their small size, their stature, to press and to create turnovers, create back tips. And they were great at it because they were so quick laterally. But conversely, they were weak when from top of the key to backboard, now they were small. They weren't small pressing. They were quick. They were gnats. They were a pain in the ass to get the ball up against. But now you go to the half court and once they get to the top of the key, now you see their weaknesses because now everybody can take advantage of their lack of size. Coach, we got one more start subset for it. This last one has to do with margins of victory. So basically analytic or statistical margins that you and your staff would look at to say, we want to win this margin in order to be successful and win the game. So the three options are start, sober, sit, winning the rebounding margin, winning the turnover margin, or winning the free throw margin? Okay, we'll start with the turnover margin. That would be most significant to us. The second one you said was the free throws were third that you said. Rebounding margin was the first one. That would be the sub one, and the sit would be the free throws. Okay, I'll start with your sub, actually, with the rebounding margin. For you and your staff, what kind of rebound margin does it matter to you? Is it offensive rebounding? Is it offensive rebounding percentage? I mean, how much do you really look at rebound margins as a group? Well, remember, everything with a pressing team is possessions. We want the most possessions. So look at why I placed that in order of input. The turnover margin is obviously a chance to get another three-point shot, to get another fast break. The rebounding margin is, again, another possession. So if you're offensive rebounding, but sometimes rebounding analytics and percentages are a little misleading. For instance, the other team has more offensive rebounds to you because you're holding them to 28 or 32% field goal defense. So obviously you are going to give up some offensive rebounds in that case. 
because of your defense is so good. So we want more possessions and the turnover margin is so important to us. The offensive rebounds are so important to us. The free throws can sometimes be misleading because they may miss them. They also, your three-point shot comes into play. It's two versus three from the foul line. They make one, you're making a three. So that's why I put it in that area of significance and importance. The offensive rebounding you talked about, if it's an offensive rebound and a putback, say a dunk or an easy basket is one thing. Let's say there's an offensive rebound. Philosophically as an offense, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to get it reversed? You're trying to attack right away. What do you want your offense to do on that? You're going to find when you give up an offensive rebound inside the arc, 50% of the time, you're probably going to foul the guy because you're upset that you gave up the offensive rebound and you're going to reach in. We've worked a lot on tipping the ball out on long rebounds, tipping it out, and then getting one quick reversal into a shot. Offensive rebounding, the one thing we try and teach, it drove me crazy this year with my Senate, what we call, he goes to the back, almost like a magnet. I would always tell him, does that guy have a magnet on his back? Why is he running to his back instead of making a move to get open, baseline out, or just reversing and following the flight of the ball? Stop running to the magnet. He runs to the, the guy's back, and then he gets called for a pushing foul. So we want to alleviate that pushing foul in the back. We want to try to get on the side of the man or get to the baseline and get out on the weak side. So we focus on that a lot, offensive rebounding position. But the thing coaches don't teach enough of, and I know through the years I didn't until just recently, is following the flight of the ball. The University of Houston is fabulous at that. They attack. They're almost like a hockey team. Throw it into the boards and and chase the puck down. That's it. They take the shot and they go after it, just like a hockey player would throwing into the ball. It's, they're fabulous at that. You can always learn, and I, I use Houston as an example. If you want to look at offensive rebounding, they're a great team to follow and they're great at it. Coach, just interesting. How this year did you try to help with the track of the ball? Is it a drill? Is it just film? Or how would you try? What we would do is three on three shell. When the shot goes up, if I'm on the weak side, I've got to make a move to get to the baseline and get out. If I'm in the middle, I'm going to make a juke and go off a shoulder while I'm following the flight of the ball, realizing that 75, 85% of the shots are going to come to the weak side. I'm going to make a move to get to the weak side. And if I can't get there in time, that's when I'm trying to tip it back out. Okay. Coach, just quickly with the tips. Are you trying to coordinate anything with your team as far as having players run to spots so they know where you're trying to tip it? Or is it just tip it and keep it alive? Not really. What we're trying to do there is I can't get two hands on the basketball. I can't get to the rebound, but I can get the tip and I'm tipping it back out. And my players know that they watch it because what do the defensive guys do? They come in the lane to grab the rebound. They're not going to stay if they're a good defensive rebounding team. And they're getting rebounding. They're not going to stay on the perimeter. So we know if we can tip it, we can tip it past the three-point line. That's where our offensive players are going to be. Okay, great. Coach, you're off the start, sub, or sit hot seat. Thanks for playing. That was a lot of fun. We've got one more question for you before we get you out of here. Before we do, thank you very much for your time this morning. This was really fun for us. My pleasure. Coach, our last question for you, and it's one we ask all the guests to close, and it's what's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? You know, the best investment I probably would say is time to learn. I think coaches, I'll leave with this. Coaches make, I I made mistakes. If I would have stayed at Kentucky, I'd have more wins today, I believe, than Coach K. So why did I go to the Boston Celtics? Well, I really, really enjoyed professional basketball at this point. But if I would have looked at the team, the roster, and studied it analytically, I would have stayed with the Kentucky Wildcats. So sometimes moving for the sake of moving for the wrong and right reasons is really, really important. Coaches take jobs that they can't win at. We won the championship. One of my assistants, Kevin Keats, went to North Carolina, Wilmington. I said, hey, great move, Kev. You'll be a terrific head coach there. My other assistant, Kareem Richardson, was going to UMKC. I said, have you studied UMKC? And he said, yeah, coach, I've worked as an assistant coach there. I said, well, look, here's what I think is a great head coaching job. I took Boston University at age 24. I looked at the league and said, I can recruit at the top of that league. If I'm Gonzaga, I can recruit at the top of the league. But if I'm San Diego, can I recruit to play against those top three? That's what you got to answer when you take a job. UMKC, I didn't believe you could recruit 
to the top of the league at Boston U. I could. When you make an investment, you got to know what you're investing into. And you have to know you're going to get 8 to 12% back on your money. So you know it's a good investment. So for me, at age 65, why did I go to Greece? What was my investment? My investment was I wanted to learn a different brand of basketball. From studying, I found out that EuroLeague basketball, offensively, is the best form of basketball to be played. Defensively, they can't play like we do over here. But offensively, their ball movement, guys like you see a Jokic, who I love watching, absolutely love. You got a lot of poor man's Jokic over there, guys that can pass, move, cut. You talk about ghost screening, there's five of them in the span of five seconds. <laughs> I came back after two years, a much better offensive basketball coach. So my investment was the ability to learn. And I took the New York Knicks assistant job from a head coaching job because I wanted to learn under UB Brown. So when you say what investment, it wasn't a period of time. It wasn't a job. It was the time I would think about learning. How could I learn? Let me go to Greece to learn EuroLeague basketball. Let me go to work on the UB Brown so I can learn what professional basketball is truly like. But the mistakes people make is plentiful when they try to invest in making money. They try to invest in becoming a head coach, and then they get fired because they didn't look at the fact that they couldn't recruit players. That's what you have to look at more than anything else. Can I recruit players to finish against the top three? If I can, I've got a good job. It's not about coaching. It's can I recruit players at that level? Because earlier I mentioned to you about the assistant coach I'm looking at. He took a job where he couldn't recruit players at the top three level. It wasn't his coaching ability. It was the fact that he couldn't compete. So that's where humility comes in. It always goes back to that word, humility. The great coaches are the humble coaches. If you said to me right now, ask me the question, who are the top coaches in the game? I would immediately hit you with Jay Wright and Tony Bennett. They would be the two. I'm talking pro and college. Mm -hmm. They would be the two best coaches I would name right away. Why? Was it their final four? Is it champions? No, because they have the qualities that all revolve around humility. I mean, Jay Wright's one of the best dressed guys in the world. <laughs> He's been to three Final Fours in five years. Why would he be so humble? Because that's what makes him great. I've known him since he was an assistant coach at Hofstra. He never lost his humility. At 60 years of age, he can step away now. At the height of his career, he feels very comfortable with that. Will he be back? No doubt in my mind he'll be back. He will come back. <laughs> he needs a break. The NIL is bothering him right now. He doesn't like it. But Bennett and Jay Wright, regardless of what they do from a basketball, at the core of their existence as a basketball coach is humility. And I say this because I, I won't make excuses to you guys. That wasn't always my core. I didn't get it until age 55, humility. So once your core is humility, you're always going to grow because you always want to learn, guys. And that's the investment you got to learn. How can I keep learning the game of basketball? And that's, I think, the key to success. When you stop learning, when I stop learning, people say, how much longer do you want to coach? When I stop learning, that's when I take on becoming a professional golfer for real. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Coach, really well said. You've done this for you know four decades and you fell in love with the game early on. I'm wondering what it is about basketball and about coaching that's kept you in love with it for so long. It's Okay, so I'm a bridge builder. I build a bridge for people to cross over with me. So if I can get my coaches to be head coaches, if I can get my players to be successful, I recently had someone just get some comments from all my players, what it was like playing for me. And it brought tears to my eyes. It was funny because the ones that I was hottest on and I drove, really, they're the ones that said the most incredible things. It's like a great teacher. You don't you don't remember the teacher that just gave you grades and didn't put a lot into it. I guess it's, I live today at 69 vicariously through my players. You know, I'm at Iona College, a small Catholic school, and I'm not there for fame. I'm not there for money. I love the players in the league. I love the coaches in the league, but you live vicariously through the players, their lives and what they accomplish, even on a simple drill. When you see them accomplish the drill and they get better and they improve, you live vicariously through them. That's a great feeling to have today. You don't live for yourself to move up the ladder. You live 
through the players moving up the ladder. And that's why you coach. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Coach, that was a lot of fun. We wish you luck the rest of the way coaching and with that golf game as well. My golf game is a 14 handicap for the last 30 years. I haven't gotten much <laughs> better. If somebody who believes in player development, yeah. I would one out of the thousand lessons I've taken in golf, I wish one of these damn teachers would get me a little yeah. bit better. <laughs> <laughs> it's good stuff. Take care, guys.